0: By you love, I've been blasted in your furnace
1: and torn to your mold
0: to fit the image.
1: Today we're at Lillian Lynn's studio in London, and we've just walked into a vast space where there are lots of examples of Lillian's work on show. There's a section sort of by a big glass window of cones, um, very similar to the cone that is in the Government Art Collection, they're actually on at the moment, so they're kind of rotating. There's a very large cone um, outside, a 20-foot cone on a deck outside the studio. There are also several other rotating machines that you might be able to hear in the background, whirring away at the moment. Those are her poem drums. And in the corner there are two vast, plumed, figurative sculptures that we're going to talk to Lillian about. Lillian, these two sculptures are really quite amazing and when I was reading about them I think I was kind of not really prepared for what I was actually going to see here in terms of you know, how, how amazingly tall they are, the fact that they've got these kind of plumages, really, almost like birds. Um, and it's kind of very different to some of the earlier work. It's like figuration has suddenly really asserted itself here. And images of women, actually, that haven't really appeared in your work before. Can you just explain to us a little bit more about why the idea of the feminine suddenly is important to you? Well, it's
0: always been important, actually. It, 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 there wasn't anything sudden about it, uh, it was gradual, but uh, I, it, it, a lot of my work's very unconscious. It start, starts from an unconscious premise, not, um, not from conscious uh, planning or ideas. Uh, so, uh, the unconscious world is really very turbulent, very uh, chaotic, with many, many, many variables. Uh, and, uh, and things surface, get submerged, surface, submerge, and it's only when they become strong enough do they surface strongly enough to the consciousness, mm-hmm. to your conscious mind, that they actually come about. Um, so for example, uh, if you look at my work, if, if, if I mean, let's say in the meat in the show that I had there, if you look at the very early drawings of my work, they're practically all of um, what you might call monsters. You sure. know, they're they're. It's full of sort of flying monsters, and, uh, and a lot of them are feminine. Right. They had a lot of breasts, and there's a lot of feminine in it in mm-hmm. the early drawings. Mm-hmm. And um, and then uh, I became I became interested to work with just pure materials, you know, that matter. Yep. And light. And that's a, just that kind of very pure abstract, uh, if you like, interest in matter and light and energy uh, was something I worked with for quite a long time. But uh, you could say there's no gender in that. But archetypes actually, uh, if you think about an archetype long enough, you realize that archetypes are always dual gender. They're not, they're, you know, they're, they're hermaphroditic, um, because uh, there's no such thing as separate, except there's something in our head. You know, they're, they're part of our imaginative world, and they're, uh, if you like, the most powerful part of our imaginative mm. world. So, um, and it's only really recently with Christianity and well, also Judaism, Moses. That isn't so recent actually. <laughs> so well, I mean, the, the, where where the but actually Judaism, did, early Judaism had the feminine in it because there was a Jewish goddess. You see, the Hebrew goddess um, in early uh, Judaic ritual. There was always a goddess, and the, the, in the holy of the holies. In, in in the temple in Jerusalem, there was a statue of a male and female, whatever, I don't know what it was like, but making love, a bit like all the Indian, uh, in, in, and all, I think all really great
1: ancient art has that. Mm-hmm. So, that kind of connection. Yeah. I mean, I'm also fascinated by how they, they seem to emotionally connect with quite sort of dark emotions. Um, I mean, the kind of spitting of the of this one on the right-hand side, and, and just the sort of, the kind of darkness of the material that they're made on, of and everything. Can you say any more about that? Do, do, you th- do you think they have that kind of emotional impact? Are you, are you looking for that, is that some, or is that something that you um, can see could be in these pieces?
0: Well, the thing is that, um, you know, when I was working with light, and um, matter and geometry for a long time, Um, My work had a kind of luminous, calm, uh, almost emotionless Mm -hmm. uh, feel about it. And um, I worked on a book that I started in 1968 called Crossing Map. And in that book, I started looking at chaos and darkness and uh, anger and uh, very powerful feelings and situations. And I realized when I I actually, what happened was I wrote the book and then I made drawings for the whole book. And it was when I made the drawings that I didn't know how to express Mm -hmm. the darkest part of it. And I realized that not knowing how to express that was uh, basically something that I needed to address. uh, Because that was something in me that was, important to look at, you see. And so I, I did address it and I started working on that and I realized that you know darkness was as important as light. You see? And actually without darkness you really don't have light. I mean you do, but you don't. Yeah, you can't see it. You can't really understand it. Uh, without without it. I mean what is darkness anyway, it's just the absence of light. So uh, you know, the, the, if you like, um, I
1: suppose space is dark. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the more tactile qualities of, of these in particular? I mean, the fact that, you know, they've got these sort of extraordinary plumages, really, and, and the beads as well. I'm fascinated by the beads that are kind of covering the faces. Well, they came out of drawings.
0: Uh, you know, everything okay. always starts with drawings. Right. And um, I, I, and it's sort Point. Um, I was. Let me just think. I'm trying to think exactly how it happened. But in 19, in the 1980s, in the early 1980s, uh, actually, it was 1979. I started working with um, with feathers, with, with feather dusters. You know, they were feather dusters actually, which I saw in shops. We went. You no, know, I think I saw these first here, 79, and. Um, just like them, you know, these feather dusters. Then, you know, you start thinking feather dusters, you like feather dusters, but feather dusters are chickens. And then, uh, they're also what women use to dust a room, you know, so they they had this relation, they they kind of referenced feminine, uh, you know, the the idea of the feminine in a number of ways. Firstly, in the, the sort of, if you like, banal kind of housewife uh, occupation, you know. But also, uh, the interesting thing if you put a number of feather dusters together like in the feathered lady, uh, they they look like a palm tree. And a palm tree is the is the tree, the birth tree. And it's again a symbol of the goddess.
1: An archetype. It's an
0: archetype. So you get this again this these fe- feathers are sort of dust soft and you think of feather boas, you know, feather fans. And they were the accoutrements. I mean, men used feathers too. Uh... Mm Basically, the song came first. I, okay. I, I, this song came to me in the street. Uh, and I had no idea. I think it was 1983 or four, maybe. Four, 1984. I, I did a performance at the Pompidou Center uh, for my book. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then after that, I was going back to, to, to uh, the apartment where I was staying with a friend. And this song came into my head as I'm walking down the street. And it was quite extraordinary song and I couldn't understand what it meant. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, I I, I mustn't forget this song. And I got back to the house and wrote down all the words and I kept on humming it so I wouldn't forget the melody. But when I got back to London, I couldn't figure out what the song, what meant Mm -hmm. and why I was singing, you know, why it came to me. And then I thought, well, I must really, you know, I always wanted to be a singer, so you know, maybe this is it. I'm going to become a pop singer, <laughs> honestly. And you know, I sent it to who was it, Jonathan Peel or somebody? I sent it to the radio, and I don't know. All the tapes that he had got stolen in Amsterdam, so mm-hmm. all, I thought, oh, I'm not going to send it again. You mm-hmm. know, um, you know, this sort of thing. I tried to actually to get it out as a mm-hmm. as a.
1: As an actual song, is Yes, it's a song, yeah. because I thought, mm. well,
0: you know, obviously I've, I've, I'm going to become a singer. Mm. You know, I love doing it. And <laughs> so there was no work.
1: thought at this stage about it being used in a Not piece? Not really. No. It didn't,
0: yeah. didn't occur to me for mm. a while, even though I had been singing to this piece. Right. So, you know, I've, but i have been singing from Crossing Map because i have been singing for a while because right. I used to perform Crossing Map before it was published, and I would sing parts of it uh, just solo, you know, without without any uh, backing, mm-hmm. just like that. And um, so then, uh, then I, I the more I just you know thinking about it, and then suddenly the, it came to me that this was the song of a sculpture. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just was obvious, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. Uh, but if you listen carefully to the words, the words are a bit ambivalent, and you mm-hmm. you really don't know what they mean. They're very strange words. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, I'll try to make the sculpture in the image of the song. See. And so I started developing it, drawing it, mm-hmm. you know, imagining it, making little models of it, making heads for it. You know. But I had for a long time developed, wanted to develop the head. Mm-hmm. Be- because what I wanted to do was find a new image for she, for the, for the feminine. And that was a long process. I mean, that yeah. started probably You know, every time I think when it started, I realize it started earlier. And that's the very strange thing, because I thought that it started in the beginning of the 80s, and then I realized that I'd actually been making these dramas in the 70s, but on a smaller scale. Right. Um, The first ones I showed at Fisher Fine Art in 1970, so that means I made them in the 60s, (laughs) you know. So, and then if you start thinking, I realized that when I first started, when I very first started, I was doing these drawings, and the drawings were of these creatures. But, you know, I forgot about them. (laughs)
1: They just took their time. So everything
0: takes such a long time. And not only that, there was this very extraordinary uh, experience I had, which was in 1959. I was 19, and I was painting. that was before I started making any kind of three-dimensional work. And I, was, I had begun to paint with um, uh, a sort of, uh, not oil, but, um, but, you know, I made my own paints. I forgot what that was called. It's the same way that Renaissance painters painted. Tempera?
1: Mm, yes. Yeah, yeah egg, egg tempera. Yeah. And
0: I made my own egg tempera paints. Mm-hmm. And anyway, and, and I had this flat with a, with a balcony mm-hmm. uh, in Paris. And it was one evening. It was sunset, and I, it was beautiful sunset. And I went out to have a look. It was sort of uh, beginning of the summer, mm. and I, there was this incredible image in the sky, the clouds. And I'd mm. always been fascinated by clouds, and uh, spent a lot of time looking at clouds. And these clouds were really incredible. And I saw, I saw a goddess in the sky. Oh. And I saw this extraordinary image of a, uh, what seemed to me to be a goddess. Anyway, I, I, I drew it and then I made a painting of it and um, so in 1980, 80-something, I remembered this. Yeah. I, I think what happened was I came across the slide. You know, and it's a kind of very blurred old mm. slide. Mm. I came across this slide. I actually had it blown up so I could see it better. Mm. And I was just amazed at it because it really prefigured all this work. And that's, I was 19. That's quite amazing, yeah. isn't it? And so I realized that uh, mm. because of, uh, not because only of the work, but because of poems I'd written, mm. I realized that re- liquid reflections, yeah. really has a feminine side to it that yeah. it really was about uh, it, I mean, you just have to read the poem. You know, when I talk about uh, sort of the horizon yeah. and space as a, a, dom- a, a domain of the goddess. Now, yeah. Inanna was a goddess of heaven and earth, heaven. And they th- yeah. where did she end up? She ended up in the underworld. You know. And what does it mean, you know? And that's what I've been doing. It's not just mm. making 3D work. It's also conceiving and thinking mm. and creating a philosophy
1: of yep. what it is. You it's know, conceptual framework.
0: And, yeah, mm. and it's it's more, it's trying to understand reality. It's mm. trying to understand yeah. history. Yeah, Because I actually believe that, you know, mm. that this had a very important influence, historic mm. influence mm. on the development of, humanity of, 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 our, of our culture. Uh, not a very good one either. <laughs> uh, but you know, th- so they, they're, it's a life's work as opposed to a year here and a year there.
1: <laughs> um, we're standing in front of these poem drums, Lillian, which I find really fascinating and you can actually see through the kind of outside surface and the kind of lettering on the outside um, into three layers of of rotating poems. Perhaps you could just tell us a little bit more about these and the kind of inspiration behind them. Okay, well in the early 1960s I
0: made works that were called, I called poem machines and I made these with basically two uh, well there were a number of thoughts in my head but um, one of them was that I was interested in interference. I'd seen, uh, I'd seen a scientific experiments with light interference. Uh, the first experiments, um, Michelson, I think, uh, that uh, basically measured the speed of light. And um, I, I, I was very interested in that. And so I created uh, a piece I called the Vibrograph which had two cylinders with lines on it that vibrated and uh, when they spun. And when, when these lines spun, they vibrated and they, uh, they became color instead of uh, being black and white uh, because of the interference. And um, I, was, I thought about it. I thought, well, lines, uh, words are made out of letters and letters are made with lines. So I could use words and do the same thing, you see. And that was how I started making poem machines. Uh, The other thought behind it was that I I used to frequent the Beat Hotel in Paris, and I knew a lot of the Beat poets, and they were cutting up uh, texts. And I started cutting up texts. So this disjunction, or if you like, uh, discontinuity and fragmentation of language and of meaning was something that interested me. So these two things came together, and I also had another third thing <laughs> in it, and that was that I had written quite a lot of poetry by then, but I also felt deeply that a great deal of what we call poetry is actually very pretentious and um, has a kind of, I mean, the language just seemed to me pretentious, but I had no way of contributing anything better. And so I thought, cut it all up and dissolve it, make it disappear, make it become energy, bring energy back into the language, you see. And that was another reason I did the poem sheet. So there were a number of layered reasons and meanings behind them. Now, they happened in the 60s, and then they developed into different things in my work. And more recently, I became interested in them again. And um, one one of the things I wanted to do, because I'm very interested in focus, and the way the brain focuses and isolates certain aspects of reality, uh, uh, because there are a million things we can see, but we see what we, what we look at, what we want to see. And so I, I started working with these cylinders that are um, basically one inside another and one text or one poem will be written on them in sequence as if each um, each uh, continuing if you like uh, like a Russian doll so if you think of them like a Hmm. Russian doll with a smaller cylinder inside another smaller cylinder and another one and each one carries a continuation of the entire text and so you have to read the text through the, through the cylinders text is cut out laser cut and there's light inside so the light is illuminating each layer uh, not only that but each of these layers turns in a different direction and at a different speed so that, that either help facilitates the reading or it doesn't, I, I wasn't sure I didn't know when I did it, I had no idea I had to make it in order to find out Uh, So now looking at it, I'm beginning to see what it does and what it, you know, uh, (laughs) what effects it produces. And uh, hopefully I'll make some more.
1: Clear light Mars cone, um, the cone acquired for the Government Art Collection, comes from your second wave of cones, made after 2004, I believe. Um, That cone has got a snaking, luminous green line uh, around the off-white, which forms the cone when it, um, and when it rotates it creates very subtle changes very similar to the cones actually that are in front of us here. Um, I've interest, I'm very interested to see that you've got a cone actually outside here because I was going to ask you about the fact that you have sighted cones outside in the open air and um, I wanted to know a little bit more about this and where the cones are around the world and also about the challenges that it raises having works like this outside. Well um I do have a
0: number of cones outside. Um, The first, the first large public commission that I had was uh, in 1971, and I made a a 20-foot-high white mild steel, actually cone, mild steel cone. um, That instead of having using this way of what I do here is, um, I intersect. This is basically, let me just describe this. This is a, a, a fiberglass shell. Mm-hmm. So the cone is a fiberglass shell yeah. uh, that is quite thin and it's cut into elliptical sections and then planes of perspex. They're not really lines. They're, whole, they're actually planes that go straight the way through the cone. So for example that one, which is pr- Clear perspex has no light inside it, and that they're, you know, they're inch-thick planes of perspex that go right through it, solid. Uh, Yeah. Whereas, and these these are thinner, you see, and they have holes in the center, large holes, openings that that uh, a fluorescent light goes through. See, so that what happens is that when when these turn. When they spin, and they spin at a constant speed, and it's only one particular speed per, you know, one, one uh, how many rotations per minute, right? A particular speed that allows you to see these lines moving through the cone at a, a particular sort of a pace, if you like, rhythm, uh, that somehow induces your brain into a state of, of uh, a meditative state which is something I, I, I'm interested in and also makes you aware of the relationship the spatial relationship between the lines and that, that, that relationship that spatial relationship between these lines if you like that empty space between the lines which is continually changing as opposed, let's say, to a drawing. Where often, I mean, you'd hear often of artists who make a drawing and they'll say, and I I would say the same thing, that the space between two lines is as important, if not more important, than the lines themselves, right? So here, that's a similar case. um, But here, the lines, uh, the space is actually changing. And it's changing in, in such a way that The more you look at it, the more you feel that there is no volume and that the cone, in fact, doesn't really exist, that what exists are these, these luminous lines moving in space. Now, that, of course, happens to be even stronger if you see it in the dark. But, for example, this red one, you see it's very obvious. You're beginning to see just these lines moving. And the cone itself becomes not very important, which is why I make it white. You see,
1: it's a kind of neutral colour. Um, it does really make you aware of being in the present, doesn't it? They're very much. They sort of seem to almost embody this sense of being in the here and now. I think if you, if, it, if as you say, you get start looking at them and get quite drawn into looking at them.
0: Well, it, that's you know a wonderful thing uh, to hear for me because that's um, very much what I would like to uh, encourage. You know to, to to, to get that feeling is sort of I think the best feeling you can have is but I think it's really absorption mm. uh, you know if you think about children they're very absorbed uh, in everything they do and they're absorbed because everything they do is new and they're like, uh, a wonderful thing I heard said about what a child is that a child is a scientist because they're constantly inquiring you know? mm. so they're very much in the here and now because they're absorbed, but people are often with their thoughts elsewhere and so they're not absorbed and they're not in the here and now. Mm. I mean, (laughs) Uh, grown-ups. Go back to what I was saying. So the the, the piece that I did outdoors, uh, because this is quite difficult to create and the larger it gets, the more difficult it gets, I thought I would use uh, stainless steel and neon. And so the piece that now is that the, uh, belongs to the University of Warwick and is outside the art center of the University of Warwick, is in fact stainless steel and neon. Mm. Uh, not stainless steel, mild steel, painted mm. steel right. and neon. But I've also made a piece, a similar piece for um, a hospital, you're right, at St. Mm. Mary's mm-hmm. in, on the Isle of Wight. But that one I made quite differently because I, I painted it with stripes right. and had. Then I use fiber optics instead of uh, um, perspex or neon. So I've just tried different ways of doing it to see which one could be the best. And I've cu- the reason I did these again is because I come back to the conclusion that this is the best way of actually making them. The result is
1: the most satisfying result. Yeah. Another thing that struck me about the cones delium is a relationship they have, the visual relationship they have to both modernism and minimalism I suppose you could say two of the most enduring movements in the 20th, in 20th century. Perhaps it's no accident that you've been making these cones since the 1960s maybe somehow these dynamic vessels actually stand outside of lin- linear time I like that question because I always felt that time is
0: not necessarily linear and so I, um, I would like to think that, uh, that one's work, that my work let's say, uh, or at least some part of my work might stand outside linear time. I mean if you can think about it, um, some of the best art that we can think of is timeless. Um, Pierre de la Francesca, people like that. You look at their work, and you just—they're—they're—they're they're, they're now. They're not then, you know. And even if the references are to, let's say, uh, architecture and clothing and attire, that uh, history of the time, in the way that it's been put together, the work is—is is, is work that could be completely of today. Um, also, when you think about cones. Um, I think they're timeless and but I also think they're ubiquitous they're everywhere and uh, I've just seen a photograph actually uh, taken by a friend of mine of some uh, they're conical forms that are you, you see in northern Iraq and I was just amazed they're stone they're conical they're very similar proportions and they're um, they're sort of um, they're kind of winged if you like they have they're, they're, um, um, they're like an accordion, if you like. The surface is like a, a surface of a conical accordion. And I have actually made uh, maquettes like that and do proposals for sculptures like that, but I never saw them before. So, I mean, the, you know, the, this is a, a really archetypal form.
1: Thank you very, very much, Lillian, for showing us around your studio today. I've really enjoyed looking at your work and finding out quite a lot more about it. Thanks very much indeed.
0: That's a pleasure.